0: you know, preach and teach uh, the Bible. What a privilege, I mean, that we can communicate. We have God's word. We have the very words of God to us. And uh, we have the privilege of studying it together. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity to to lead us together in that. What an amazing privilege. And so um, I don't take it lightly. I'm I'm extremely happy to be here. Um, I'm thankful for this church. This is a well-taught church. So that means I can't like lie about what the Greek says and things like that, you know. This is the Greek word kaopectate, you know, and, uh, means uh, gastrointestinal disturbances, right? Um, so it's interesting in the I don't know if you noticed this in the in the scripture reading this morning. I think we see. The origin of modern secular rap music, right? Um, I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, all that stuff. Just throwing that out there. It's all the way back in Genesis, okay? So, (laughs) it's my obligatory Bible joke before we get started. But uh, this morning, I want us to look together at Romans chapter 8. And uh, we're going to focus in on one verse but I'm going to read starting at verse 18 all the way to the end of the chapter because I want us to to get the context. And really, I'm going to be touching on the whole section that I'm reading, but I'm going to do it by focusing on verse 37 of chapter 8. But we're going to start in Romans chapter 8 and read verse 18 to the end of the chapter. So let's look there together. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Romans 8:18 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose." These are some of the most invigorating truths in the whole Bible. God, I pray that we would grip these truths with, with all of our hearts, that they would sink deeply into our hearts and minds, and that we would be different because of what we have looked at this morning. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the problem of suffering... The problem of suffering is a, huge, is a huge issue for human beings. Thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of words have been written on the problem of human suffering. What is it? You know, why is it here? And, and for Christians, it has been posed as the perennial problem. I mean, if God, is good, if God is all good, and God is all loving, and God is all powerful, why do people suffer? Why do his people suffer, right? Why is it that a good God doesn't just remove all suffering from the world? And this, this, is a, this is a serious problem for Christians. It's one of the deepest philosophical issues in the Christian world. And it's not an abstract issue alone, right? It's, it's a philosophical question. There's whole books written on the problem that's called theodicy. Uh, that's, that's the theological term for making a defense of God's actions in the world. But it's a real practical issue because every single one of your your lives, every single day, has been marked by suffering to some degree, right? We come into this world screaming, and we usually leave it screaming, right? Life is lived between two hospitals, right? We're born in a hospital, and we usually die in a hospital. And... And, not, and it's not just the big things in life like cancer or a car wreck or, you know, a wayward child or something like that, that that provoke these questions. I mean, it's everyday life. Not one day in your life has been completely suffering free. Right? Everything in our existence and everything that we encounter has the fingerprints of the fall all over it. Right? And And we encounter suffering every single day. So... What's the answer to the problem of evil? What's the answer to the problem of suffering? Well, I I believe that's almost the wrong question to really ask. Because the Bible does provide answers to the question why suffering comes into the world, why there is such a thing as evil, and things like that. But really, that's not our deepest need. A man named uh, James S. Stewart wrote this, Man's main concern with a dark fact of suffering is not to find an explanation... It's to find a victory. It's not to elaborate a theory. It's to lay hold upon a power. He goes on to say, even if you possessed the answer to the riddle, even if you had it written down to the last detail and could say, there, there it is. There's the full and final explanation for the problem of pain. That wouldn't be enough. For the pain itself would have to be born. And that's why God gave us Christ. You see, it'd be useful to have maybe a philosophical, mathematical kind of explanation for why they're suffering in the world. But what we need is strength to actually get through life. That's what we need, right? It's the difference between having a map on how to get over a mountain. Okay, here's the path. Here's how you do it. It's been done before. Here's the exact path I need to take. Here's the supplies I need to take with me. Here's a, but you still have to climb the mountain, don't you? And what you need in that moment is you need the strength to actually get through. I mean, you can actually make it over a mountain without a map, right? If you have the strength to bear it. And that's what we most need. What we most need is not an explanation. We need strength. We need power. We need something to help us get through it. And that's what we're looking at today. You see, Paul is bringing us to the practical effects of all the truth he has been teaching. Okay? Through the book of Romans, he's been expounding the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. That's maybe the theme of the whole book of Romans. The opening section, all the way up to chapter 3, verse 20, is showing man's need of the righteousness found in the gospel. We've all fallen short of glory of God. We are unrighteous. We need God's righteousness. And then from chapter 3... To the end of chapter 4, he talks about God's provision of righteousness through Jesus Christ in the gospel. And then in chapters 5 through 8, he talks about the implications of God's righteousness found in the gospel. And then in chapters 9 through 11, he talks about Israel's rejection of the gospel and the righteousness of God found in there. But right here, in the very center of the book of Romans, okay, Romans has sixty chapters, this is chapter 8, okay, right in the center of the book, he pauses... And says, what shall we say to these things? I mean, he's been talking about the glorious truth of the gospel. He's been talking about the most lofty and amazing truths found anywhere in the Bible. And he says, what then shall we say to these things? How are we going to respond to this amazing truth? He says, we've heard the truth. We've understood it, we've grasped it intellectually, and we've believed it, but what effect is it going to have on our lives? How is it going to change us? How are we going to use it in the struggles of daily life? And I want us to look at verse 37 this morning. Verse 37, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is an absolutely magnificent sentence. It's spare and elegant and forceful. There's no adjectives. There's no flowery language. There's 15 words in English, and 14 of them are words of one syllable. But every single word... Some of you are looking at them, counting the syllables, right? But every single one of these words is charged with spiritual power. And see, God is in our midst this morning. And in the preaching of his word, he draws near to us, and he speaks these words to you himself so that you can believe them with all of your heart, and more than that, so that you can experience them for yourself and the reality of which they speak. So this morning, I want to talk about the believer's victory. How do we have victory over the trials and tribulations of life? How do we overcome them? What's the power we need? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we're going to break this down into three points. And the first point is the sphere of victory. The sphere of victory. What is the arena in which our victory is won? What is the sphere in which our victory takes place? He says, in all these things. In all these things. In verses 35 through 36 that we just looked at, Paul gathers together almost all the earthly troubles we could possibly imagine. He talks about pain, sickness, sadness, loss, abuse, ill treatment, discouragement, disappointment, setbacks, you name it, it's here. Everything that you can imagine. He brings all the sorrows, all the troubles, all the difficulties together in one compact mass. He looks at life at its blackest. He faces up to the circumstances at their most difficult, what he calls in verse 18, the sufferings of this present time. This is a comprehensive expression. All these things. He doesn't say some of these things. He says all these things. It includes everything difficult in life. Nothing is left out. That is the sphere of the believer's victory. This is the context in which our victory is experienced. In all these things. Notice that preposition. It's really important. He doesn't say, apart from all these things, we're more than conquerors. Because that would say, you know, well, we have difficulties, right? We have bad times. Bad things happen to everybody. We all shed tears. But, no, but not all of life is like that, right? There are happy times. There are times of blessing. There are times where we're joyful. And in those times, in those times, we're more than conquerors. That's not what he says. Paul doesn't say that. And Paul doesn't say, after all these things, we're more than conquerors. He doesn't say that. He says, well, life is certainly tough, but you know what? It's going to end one day, and we're going to ha- we're have pie in the sky by and by. We're going to have eternal happiness in heaven. and Then, then we'll be more than conquerors. I mean, that's true, but that's not what he says. He says, in all these things. Notice he doesn't say, in spite of all these things we're more than conquerors. That's that's an important distinction. He doesn't say in spite of all these things we're more than conquerors, right? He doesn't say, you know, we can grit our teeth. We can push them down into our subconscious. We can try not to think about these things and just make the best out of life and somehow we'll gain victory. No, that's not what Paul says. He says in All these things, in the middle of them, while we are experiencing them, we are more than conquerors. Because of all these things, we are more than conquerors. By means of all these things, we are more than conquerors. These things, these terrible, tragic, testing things, form the arena in which our victory is to be won. This is the sphere of the believer's victory. I mean, it seems really strange, doesn't it? It seems odd and paradoxical. I mean, some TV preachers with big Texas-sized smiles, right, they talk a lot about what they call victorious Christian living, right? Discover the champion in you. Believe really hard. uh, Claim the victory in Jesus, and you'll prosper financially, physically, and everything in your life will be pain-free. If you become a Christian, and you just speak words of truth and prosperity over your life, you'll just float through life without a care, without a cloud, nothing bad will ever happen to you. That is nonsense. Amen. It's nonsense. It's not true. I mean, when, I mean, think about it. I mean, when people talk about victorious Christian living that way, I mean, it doesn't even fit with the, with the analogy being used or what the Bible actually says. But, I mean, when you think of victory, what do you think of? What picture comes into your mind? I mean, do you think of people sitting on a beach, you know, in a nice lawn chair, sipping a... uh you know, a, a virgin daiquiri or something like that? You know, uh, do you think of people in nice drawing rooms sipping tea out of fine china and eating cucumber sandwiches? And fa- is, that, is that the picture of victory or, oh, yeah, I just got a new house and a new car and everything's great and I'm blessed by the best. Hashtag blessed by the best, right? And so everything's <laughs> great in my life, you know? And is that the picture of victory? I mean, when you think of victory, I mean, where do victories happen Victories happen in wars and in battle. When you think of victory, what you should see in your mind is a bloody, terrible battlefield. With soldiers standing with grimy faces and stark staring eyes and and shaking arms and legs and with wounds and exhausted and trembling and looking around at the carnage and stench and the screaming of the battle. If you're a victor, you're most certainly bleeding. You think of a soldier with a broken arm and an amputated leg, bleeding from every part of his body. A victory has happened, but victories happen in wars. Victories happen in battles where there's fighting and suffering and terror and desperation and anguish and struggle. That's where victories happen. This serene picture of Christian victory is nonsense. doesn't match with our lives with the new testament or the very metaphor that's used victory is not antiseptic it's not relaxed it's not risk-free the sphere of victory the sphere of a christian's victory is intense struggle and pain and tears to conquer okay to be more than a conqueror to conquer implies an enemy and wounds and fighting and so Do you see the realism of, of Christianity? Do you see that? This needs to be said because some Christians explicitly teach, and most Christians, I think, implicitly believe that if you become a Christian and you love God, you know, less bad things will happen to you, right? But that's just simply not true. That's just simply not true. I mean, we may, as Christians, avoid some of the pitfalls of sin and things like that, but... All the bad things that happen to everyone else will happen to Christians. As a matter of fact, sometimes your life will become more difficult because you are a Christian. This idea of victorious Christian living, where you know you'll always be a champion and you'll always overcome all the, the you'll avoid the bad things in life is is ridiculous. So the realism of the Christian faith is this it's tremendous. It's bracing, it's challenging, it's honest. It's not pious escapism. It's not a rose-colored, unrealistic view of life. See, the Apostle Paul here looks at life on earth as it truly is. He looks all the tragedies, tragedies of life square in the face and says, what I'm telling you is big enough and true enough to encompass the worst that could ever happen to you on earth. This is enough. The believer's victory is not dependent upon ideal circumstances. Okay? Most of us, actually probably none of us, uh, don't live in ideal circumstances. Right? We don't, we're not ideal people. We don't have ideal relationships. We don't live in an ideal world. But what Paul is saying is more valuable than that. He's saying to you this morning that where you are right now, at this moment in your life, you can experience victory. Today, right now, no matter what it is, no matter how difficult, no matter how dangerous, no matter how hard or heartbreaking or discouraging your life is right now, no matter what, you can have victory. No matter how much you have been abused or may be being abused. No matter matter what, you can experience victory. No matter how messed up your marriage is. No matter matter how bad your addiction is. I don't care if you were high on drugs last night. You can have victory. You can overcome it. No matter what the doctor said, no matter what is going on in your life, you can experience victory. This promise is earthed in the real day-to-day existence of believers. In all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Alexander McLaren said this, It's not that we shall be conquerors in some far off heaven where the noise of battle has ceased and they hang the trumpet in the hall, but it's in the here and now, in the hand-to-hand and foot-to-foot death grapple that we do overcome. This is a great paradoxical biblical truth, that God saves his people not despite their sufferings, but through and even because of them. You see, what this shows you is that we don't need ideal circumstances, right? So a faith that doesn't need success is the ultimate success. A faith that doesn't need success is the ultimate success. So where's the sphere of your victory? Look around at your life, your workplace, your school, your circumstances, your relationships, your marriage. Your temptations and your sorrows, your difficulties, that's the sphere of your victory. Where you are right now. The area of struggle, the area of trauma, that's it. So that's the sphere of victory. The next is the superlative of victory. Superlative, that's a weird word, okay? Superlative of victory. That's super, L-A-T-I-V-E, okay? The superlative of victory. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. I mean, Paul has painted a really daunting prospect. I mean, we're faced by formidable enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. They're against us, and we're weak. I mean, we are weak. I am weak. You are weak. I mean, think about this. What can we possibly hope for in a battle with Satan? Right? If someone said, Hey, you and Satan go toe to toe, what's the best that you can hope for? <laughs> you go, I, uh, You know, wow, uh, I don't know. I mean, this, I guess the best I can hope for is maybe to, to survive, right? to cope, to, to win through by the skin of my teeth. But Paul says we are more than conquerors. Right? What could that possibly mean? I mean, it's just an interesting phrase. He actually makes up a Greek word that, to my knowledge, it's, it's used nowhere else in the Greek New Testament, and to my knowledge, nowhere else in ancient Greek literature. He puts two words together. Okay? It's the word for victory, which is Nike, or Nike, right? the Greek god of victory. Um, So he uses the word Nike and then uh, the word like hyper, okay, hooper Nike, okay, and so he's saying we, we hyper conquer, we super conquer, we transcendently, utter, absolutely, and totally conquer. He says, our victory is total. It is overwhelming. These troubles, they assault us, but we overcome them. They are unable to damage us. They are unable to defeat us. They are unable to break us. We conquer them. But but Paul goes on farther than that. He says, we more than conquer them. What can it possibly mean to more than conquer something? I think Saul of Tarsus who became Paul. I think Saul of Tarsus is the best biblical example of this. Well, maybe the second best biblical example of this. Think about this. Jesus Christ could have merely conquered Saul of Tarsus. Okay, Saul, before he became an apostle, right, he was a persecutor of Christians. He was throwing Christians into prison. He was voting against them when they were being tried and killed. Jesus could have merely conquered Saul. He could have strung him down on the ground. And he would have conquered him in that. Or he could have struck him blind and deaf and paralyzed him. And he would have conquered him. Right? Saul could not oppose Christianity anymore. He could not persecute Christians anymore. That would have been a victory. Christ would have conquered Saul of Tarsus. He would have have reduced him to nothing. He would have neutralized him. He would have wiped him out of existence. He would have conquered him. But you see, Christ more than conquered Saul of Tarsus didn't he? You see, he turned him from an enemy into a servant. That's more than conquering. He turned him from a persecutor into an apostle. He turned him from someone who hindered his cause to someone who helped his cause. To neutralize him would have been victory. To enlist him in his service was more than victory. That is, I think, the superlative of victory to which Paul is referring to here. He's saying that these troubles, these disappointments, these setbacks and sufferings we face by the gracious power of God, not only do they not destroy us, but in the long term, they help us. God takes the sufferings and trials of this life and turns them into our servants. You see, to conquer is to have your enemies lying at your feet. To overwhelmingly conquer, or to more than conquer, is to turn them into your servants. Not only do they not defeat us, they actually strengthen us. Not only are they not a curse, but they're overruled for a blessing. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. I mean, I know this is hard to accept when you're suffering. This is a difficult thing to accept when we're in the depths of pain. When we're in the middle of a struggle, when we're in the middle of hearing really traumatic news or in the middle of just a death battle with something, we're not ready to hear how valuable suffering can be, right? It's, it's not the right time. I don't think people typically accept that very well. I mean, how glib that can sound, right? Imagine coming to someone in the depths of trouble and patting them on the shoulder and say, cheer up, brother. It's just a blessing in disguise, Right? Okay. By the way, the Bible never says that, um, and Paul actually doesn't say these things are blessings. The things themselves are not blessings. Okay. These trials—they're not blessings in disguise. They're unnatural. They're horrible. They're the wages of sin. They're intruders into this world. God hates them. If you've suffered in your life, God hates what was done to you. He does. Know that, okay? He is against it. Suffering is evidence that the way things were originally created ha- has been vandalized. I mean, Christ did not chuckle at the tomb of Lazarus, did he? Right? He wept. I mean, Jesus was about to raise him from the dead, and he didn't go, hey, guys, guess what I'm about to do, right? No, he looked at the tomb of Lazarus, and he, he wept, and he, and he cried out in anger. It says that he snorted in anger, and he wept for all, the, for all that death has done in the world, for every widow, for every orphan, for every tear that has been shed since, since Eden uh, on the rest of the world, Jesus, the merciful Son of God, wept in holy, compassionate anger. I mean, the Bible says that death is an enemy. It's unnatural. And, and Paul himself knew too much trouble to take it lightly, right? Every single thing that he's listed in this list, he's experienced. You know, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and he would eventually face the sword, right? He was actually beheaded by the Romans. So these things aren't blessings. They're not blessings in disguise. There's nothing good about them. They are thoroughly and absolutely bad, but they are overruled for good. At the end of Joseph's life, right? Jo- Joseph, he was sold into slavery and then wanted a Potiphar's house, then wanted a jail, then got out again, and his brothers tried to kill him, threw him in a pit, sold him in slavery. All this bad stuff happened. At the end of his life in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph said, What you intended for evil, God intended for good. To bring about this present result. To, to bring to keep many people alive. The same thing is true of your life. <laughs> All the bad things that are intended for evil against you, God intends for good. God takes all these things and he uses them. God does with them what Jesus did with Saul of Tarsus. He not only enables us to come through them, he enables us to gain sweetness out of them, to get strength out of them, and to change us for better because of them. I mean, that's what the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 5. It says, and not only this... He says, we rejoice, we exult in our tribulations. Now, why would you exult in your tribulations? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Well, well, he says this, because tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who is given to us. You see that? He says, these things that Satan would try to use to destroy us, become our servants. They make a, they either draw us closer to Jesus or make us more like Jesus. And many of us can testify about those things in our lives, where sufferings or injuries or disappointments have been means of grace to our souls. In Psalm 119, I think it's verse 75, the psalmist says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, are righteous and in, in, in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Another place in Psalm 119, he says, it was good for me that I was afflicted. It was good for me that I was afflicted so that I might learn your statutes. I mean, isn't this how God often answers our prayers? We say, God, help me be a patient person. And if you could make me patient by tomorrow, that'd be great. But how's God going to teach you patience? He's going to make you wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And you'll say, why aren't you answering my prayers? You know, he is. He's making you patient by making you wait. Or you say, God, make me a more loving person. I just want to be a more loving, compassionate person. God smiles and says, oh, I've got a real beauty for you. And he brings into your life the most awkward, disagreeable person you've ever met in your life. Right? And you say, Oh, God, could you just bring some nice people into my life? <laughs> like, you know, right? But, but how do you become loving? Not by loving lovely people or people who are easy to love, by, but by loving unlovely people, right? You say, God, make please make me more meek. And God causes someone to hit you right in the face. <laughs> Why are you doing this to me, Lord? Why? Why? Because he's answering your prayers. He's working in you. You know, the trials in this life are kind of like uh, going to the gym and working out, right? Okay? Um, When you go to the gym, all right, hypothetically speaking, all right, uh, whenever whenever you, you lift weights, okay, when you lift weights, do you feel yourself just getting stronger and stronger and stronger with every lift? No, you feel yourself getting weaker and weaker and weaker, right? And if you don't understand how a gym works, uh, I'm one of those people, if you don't understand how a gym works, you'd be like, the people told me to come here to get stronger, and all I feel is weaker. It's so stupid, and I'm leaving, you know? But, but that's how it works, right? Exercise, you know, you know, working out, you know, you've got to get weak before you become strong, right? And in life, if you feel yourself getting weaker and weaker and weaker, that is how it works. That is how it works. And I, I want to I say even this, and I'm going to say this carefully. God can even use your, your sins. Not just the trials and tribulations that come into your life, but he can even use your sins. And this is no apology for sin. It's no excuse for sin. But if you can look back on the sins in your life, it can make you a more humble person. Right? You say, I would never do that. I would never talk to my kids like that, right? And then you do, and you're like, oh, my gosh. You know, you'll be more, that's something that's made me really compassionate towards the parents with the screaming kids in the grocery store, right, Just having uh, screaming kids in the grocery store, right? <laughs> you know, and being, like, completely insane about it. Um, if you, but your sins and your shortcomings, they can make you more humble. They can make you more compassionate. They can make you less judgmental, less critical, more forgiving, more patient. I mean, isn't that the wonder of our great God, that he can even take our sins and our failures and he can turn them around for our good? He's so wise and so sovereign and so almighty that he can take our very sins and in the mystery of his will can bring good out of In all these things, we are more than conquerors. So we're not just looking at beating these things, we're looking at the blessing that we're going to get from them. And that brings us to the last point, the source of victory. The sphere of victory is in all these things. The superlative of victory, we are more than conquerors. And lastly, the source of victory is through him who loved us through him who loved us. That's the source of our victory. Because if we stop there, if we just stop where we we just talked about, we stop the, the sermon and the scripture at that point... It would just seem arrogant, right? Oh, we, by ourselves, are more than conquerors in Christ. Just try hard and believe in yourself, right? That's the sermon that every single Disney movie preaches, by the way. <laughs> try hard, believe in yourself, let your conscience be your guide, follow your heart. You know, it's nonsense. But, um, but <clears throat> what I've said so far could just seem arrogant, right, and ridiculous and ludicrous, if we could just say, I'm going to face everything in life brings me and I'm going to overcome it, it'd be empty boasting and pathetic whistling in the dark. But now Paul brings us the transcendent factor that turns sorrow into joy and defeat into victory, and that's Christ. He is the source of our victory. He is the source of our victory in two ways. First of all, he's the source of our victory by his presence. It says that, we are more than conquerors through him. We are more than conquerors through him. His promise, Jesus' promised to his disciples was, I'm with you always. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's his permanent promise to all of his people. He is with his people always, but know this, people who are, to people who are suffering, I think we can see in the Bible that, that God is particularly close to people who are suffering. Uh, The psalmist says, you know, God is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. When you think about uh, a parent with like four kids, and they love all their kids equally, they love all their kids the same, all their kids get equal amount of love and all that stuff. But if one of those kids is suffering, or is sick, or is going through something difficult, there is more attention given to that suffering child. You know, you draw nearer to that child. You're, you're closer there. There's more care and more tenderness um, given to that particular child. And, and that doesn't mean that the parents love any of the others less, and they're not losing out in any way, but this child is in need, and their heart goes out to that child in a special way. This is true of the Savior in us. When we are hurting, he is especially near to us. When we are weeping, his heart goes out to us in an unusual way. I mean, you remember those three Hebrew boys in the Old Testament? They were, they were thrown into a fiery furnace, right? And he says, oh, and then Nebuchadnezzar looks and he goes, wait a second. Uh, <laughs> we threw three guys in, but there are four. There are four, and one of them looks like the Son of God, right? Christ was with them in their furnace of affliction in a special way. The same thing is true of you. The nearness of Christ in our tribulation is actually the context of this whole passage. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christ is especially present with us in our sorrow, our need, our tears, and our hard times. And you know, you might ask yourself, you know, he has all authority, I mean, he could command 12 legions of angels with a word. He could iron out all the difficulties that you're facing in your life right now. He could dry all of your tears. He could solve all of your problems. He could make your life a bed of roses. He could, but he chooses not to. Because all of these things are part of his sovereign plan. It is he who allows the grief to come into your life. But know this know this that anything that comes into your life has already passed through nail pierced hands because he has he has undergone the suffering himself everything that comes into your life has already passed through nail pierced hands this um this song how firm a foundation is based upon Isaiah 43 and I think these these verses of it are particularly particularly helpful here it says When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee, thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy thy pathways shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design, thy dross to consume, and thy gold to refine. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul that I'll, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. God is near to you in your suffering. That is the source of your victory. The nearness of God is your strength. The nearness of God is the source of your victory. And if and if we know his nearness, we can be more than conquerors through him. But I said he's he's a source of our victory in two ways. The first was by his presence, but the second, the second way He's the source of our victory, is, is in his passion. The source of victory is ultimately Christ's suffering. Because look at this. This is what our text says. He says, through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. And that's an interesting phrase because Christ has always loved us. He loved us in the counsels of eternity. When God the Father gave us to his Son, Christ loved us and he will always love us throughout all the ages of eternity. But the verb here, the way it's written, points to one supreme moment in past time, one instant in which Christ loved us. One point when Christ's love was extended in a most unique and most significant way. He's saying him who once upon a time, at a particular point in time, in place, supremely loved, loved us. And you know what it was. You're already thinking about what it was. It was the cross. Paul Paul says this in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Those two things are the same. His loving you is the same as his giving himself for you. That was the culmination of his love. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So the source of our victory is him who loved us on the cross by his atoning death. Now, why is that? Why why is that? It's because on the cross, he broke the power of evil forever. He crushed Satan. He paid the full penalty for all of our many sins, past, present, and future. He robbed the death of its sting and the grave of its victory. But even more than that, in that act of love, what did Christ do? I mean, he faced the full force of evil, and what happened? You say, he conquered it. He conquered the grave, right? Yes, he did conquer it, but he more than conquered it. He more than conquered it because he turned it into good. I mean, isn't that the most amazing thing you've ever heard in your life? Okay, every blow of Satan was saving sinners. Every nail, every thorn, every whip, every punch was paying for sin, Every attack on the son of God Satan thought he was winning the victory but he was destroying himself. He thought he was winning the battle but he was he was accomplishing his own defeat. And when the son of God was hanging there cursed and dead the devil thought he'd won but he just lost. He lost the whole thing. Do you see the paradox of this whole thing? He not only conquered these things, he more than conquered them. He turned them into good. And so now we can look back at the most evil act of sin in the history of the world. I mean, think about that. The greatest act of evil in the history of the universe was the crucifixion of the Son of God, but it's the greatest act of love in the history of the universe. It's the greatest victory In the history of the universe. Because we look back and we thank God for the cross. We thank God for his sufferings and the beatings and the crown of thorns and the mockery and the darkness. Because because in it the son of God was bearing sin. Every cruelty, every blow of Satan was saving sinners. It wasn't a tragedy. It was a triumph. It wasn't a defeat. It was a victory. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is amazing. And you know what a you know what a souvenir is? A souvenir souvenir is it comes from the French word to remember, right? And that means exactly that. It's something that you get to remember. You you go on vacation, you go to France, maybe get a little keychain of the Eiffel Tower, right? You go to Greece, you bring back a little Parthenon statue, right? If you're like me, you bring back statues of all the Greek philosophers and stuff like that. You bring something back that epitomizes or captures the place where you've been or a person you want to remember. Well, Jesus Christ left his church a souvenir. And he didn't say, oh, remember my birth, right? Remember my birth, create a little manger scene, there's nothing wrong with that, but he didn't say that, right? He didn't say, oh, remember my life, you know? He said, he he, he gave us bread and wine. Right? He gave us a souvenir in bread and wine, symbols of his broken, bleeding body. A reminder of, of his death. He says, here is how I want you to remember me. On the cross, broken, suffering, dying for you. When you remember me, remember me like this. For, he, for there is where our salvation was accomplished and the victory was won. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I want to talk about one more thing, and then we'll close. Think about this. When Jesus Christ shows up after his resurrection, he shows that he still has wounds in his beautiful glorified body. Have you ever thought about that? Like, why? I mean, it doesn't say that he had all the whip marks and things like that, like he didn't look like a bloody pulp, but it did say that he had the wounds in his wrists, and in his, in his feet, right, and in his side. Right? He, he had symbols of his suffering. and death. Why in the world... Would Jesus Christ, in his beautiful, glorified, risen, permanent body, still have his wounds? And why wouldn't he get rid of them? Right? That's what makeup's for, right? To get rid of the old wounds? Yeah. Um, why, why would he do that? I mean, here is Jesus coming back from the dead, and not only does he have his wounds, but he shows them to his disciples. Let me tell you what, what I think, why I think he does that and what it means for us. When the disciples saw those nails go into his hands on the cross, when the disciples saw the cross happening, their lives shattered. Right? Do you remember that? They, they fell apart. that they, they choked. I mean, all of their dreams turned into nightmares. I mean, they choked. They betrayed him. They denied him. They ran away. They blew it. Right? They completely melted down. They went back to their old careers. They couldn't handle it. Now, why is that? Well, it's because... They never actually entirely believed in Jesus and his mission. They believed in their agenda for Jesus. Right? And Jesus' death destroyed their agenda for Jesus. Their agenda for Jesus was that he was gonna rise to political power and they were gonna be in his cabinet, right? All be the Minister of Defense. You know, I'll be the treasurer, you know, I'll be the vice president. You know, they were all voting themselves into office and they thought they were going to rise to power. But when they saw the suffering and the death of Jesus, they said, our lives are ruined. Everything's over. And you see, the very thing that was giving them a salvation beyond anything they could have ever imagined, they thought was ruining their lives. The very thing that was accomplishing this salvation beyond anything they could ever imagine or hope or think, they thought was ruining their lives. And see, if you believe in the risen Christ, then you can shift your faith from your agenda for Jesus to Jesus himself. And when these terrible things happen in your life, and you have no idea what he's doing, well, you can remember the original case when the disciples saw something that was actually saving their souls, and they felt like it was ruining their lives. And you see, Jesus says, Embrace me, and every death will lead to a resurrection. Every failure will lead to the resurrection of greater humility and wisdom and more beauty or character. Everything that goes wrong in your life, every sorrow, will eventually turn into gold. That moment when you think something is ruining your life, it's saving your life. And I think the reason why Jesus has his wounds and his resurrected and glorified body is that his wounds make him more beautiful, not less beautiful, right? I mean, think about that. Jesus' wounds in his resurrected body, do they make him less beautiful or do they make him more beautiful? His death for me, his wounds, make him even more beautiful than if they were gone. I mean, isn't isn't that true? Well, in the same way, I tell you that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, every one of your sorrows... Every one of your wounds will make your eventual glory even greater. It will make you more beautiful. It will make you more excellent. It will make you more like Jesus. And that is the ultimate defeat of evil and death. Because a faith that doesn't need success is the ultimate success. And So we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And when you bleed, remember Jesus. When you suffer, remember Jesus. When you feel forsaken, when, you, when you're mocked, when people tell lies about you and abuse you, remember Jesus. Because he was mocked. He was forsaken. People told lies about him and abused him. And that's the pattern ever since. And we can confront the worst Satan can do because all he can do is drive us closer to Jesus. <laughs> that's all that Satan can do. And if you will see all your troubles in that light, if you will let everything bring you to Christ, you're taking the sting out of it. You're turning poison into sweetness. And Satan wants you to be bitter. He wants you to be angry. He wants you to feel sorry for yourself. He wants you to give up and to quit and to think, that, to think more about your problems than you think about Christ. But all you have to do is say, Lord, whatever you bring into my life, I'm going to let it bring me closer to Jesus. You break my heart, I'll go to Jesus for comfort. You knock me down, I'll go to Jesus to lift me up. You disappoint all my hopes, I'll place my hope in him more than ever. So whatever happens to me, all it can do is bring me closer to my Savior or make me more like my Savior. Jesus loved us with a blood-stained love, and it is our privilege to take up our cross and follow him. Go to him. Go to him with your sorrows. Go to him with your heartbreak. Go to him with your suffering and your defeat, and you will be more than a conqueror through him. Winston Churchill said this one time, most of the world's work is done by very tired people who have sore heads and would like to lie down. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what life is like. Most Christian living is done by people like that. We have sore heads and we'd like to lie down. The Christ's path, vi- path to victory is go to him. Go to him. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. One of my favorite hymns in the whole world is I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say, and it says, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me for rest. Lay down, thou weary, one lay down, your head upon my breast. And then it says, I came to Jesus as I was, weary, worn, and sad, and found in him my resting place, and he has made me glad. Go to Jesus. Find in him your resting place. Run to him, and you will find rest for your souls, and you will be more than a conqueror through him who loved us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the goodness of Jesus Christ in the gospel. We thank you that he suffered and died so that we could be more than conquerors through him who loved us. We thank you that the gospel is big enough to handle the real things of life. And I pray that if there's anyone here today that is heavy burdened, is weary, is ready to give up, can't take one more step, that you would draw near to them and comfort them and help them find victory through your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.